You know, we are now beginning to reap uh, the harvest of all the uh, voter fraud and everything else back in November. Uh, Dr. Everett Piper is a friend of Paul's and mine and is a uh, prolific writer. And he, uh, he uh, tweeted or Facebooked or something out the other day. He said, all of you uh, Biden evangelicals, happy now? And all the things that they're doing. For instance, this weekend, they just passed an almost $2 trillion stimulus package. With most of it not even going to COVID uh, concerns. Now get this. The Democrats voted down two efforts by a vote of 50 to 49 to keep uh, COVID checks from going to incarcerated criminals and illegal aliens. And the Democrats beat that down because they want those checks to go to people in prison who can't even vote and illegals. So that kind of tells you uh, what we are up against for the next, um, well, at least till 2022. They're going to ram everything through that they possibly can. And I'm telling you, what you're seeing right now is just the beginning if they have their way. Yesterday, now, I, we typically uh, buy gasoline at a place that, that sells the, the, just the straight regular without the ethanol in it. Uh, I paid three bucks a gallon for regular yesterday in Yukon. So again, all you Biden evangelicals that were so, well, he can't vote for Trump. He's got some arrogance in him. You happy now? I mean, that's what we're facing. Now, to show you just exactly the attitude uh, among the leadership in Congress right now, this is Representative Jerry uh, Nadler, as you know. He's the chairman of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee. On uh, February the 25th, uh, he said this to Mr. Stubbe, who is representative from Florida, who was saying that God made people male and female. He said, what any religious tradition describes as God's will is no concern of this Congress. Yeah, that's the mentality of um, those who are leading us at the present. That's why Spencer Clavin, who uh, is a, um, a conservative uh, uh, talk show host and other things, said this on February the 9th this year. We cannot peaceably disagree anymore because the things about which we are fighting are not things about which disagreement can be peaceable. Arguments about God, freedom, and personhood are not mere political arguments in the modern sense of disagreements about how to put shared values into practice. They touch on what we're about. And I think he really hit the nail on the head here. We are are now facing a moment here where it's not just a disagreement about political position and this party takes this position and that party takes that. Now we're talking about core values. Now we're talking about the very principles, not only philosophical and theoretical, but fiscal, economic, um, uh, immigration. There is now a massive crisis on the border at Texas. And while they're calling... um, Uh, Governor Abbott and Neanderthal, they meaning the president, for telling people that they don't have to wear masks. 
They just released over a hundred illegal aliens who were uh, positive for COVID-19 in Texas. Now, I think that's on purpose because they, of course, want to drive the numbers of COVID illnesses up in Texas and then blame it on Abbott. Understand the hypocrisy in this kind of thinking. This is the world in which we live. This is why Paul and I keep saying, guys, we're, 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 we're running headlong into a pivot point. The road forks not far ahead. And we better decide who we are, what we believe. Now, in that vein, I want to preach a message today entitled, An Unoffensive Gospel? Question mark. For those of you who are listening and cannot see, An Unoffensive Gospel? Question mark. Now, the backdrop for this is obviously comments made by Max Lucado, maybe the best-selling Christian author in America maybe even in the world, but certainly in America. Well-known preacher, teacher, uh, talk show personality, as I said, author, uh, has sold tons and tons of books. Over the years, I have quoted from Max Lucado because I thought Max was, was pretty sound. Well, on February the 7th, he preached in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., which is a leftist church, if there is such a thing, a leftist church, it's Episcopal. And there was a big uh, uh, argument among some of the members and just general folks about having someone like Max Lucado speak at the National Cathedral because of comments, insensitive comments, that he's made in the past about uh, those who who practice what the Bible calls sexual perversion. So he spoke, though, on February the 7th, but then he penned a letter on February the 11th where he commented on all of the controversy about his speaking at the National Cathedral. Now, when he spoke there, he was actually speaking on the subject of the Holy Spirit and the power of God's Spirit working in his people. That was the topic. So it wasn't about uh, homosexuality, lesbianism, uh, pedophilia, or anything else. It was, it was just about the, the Holy Spirit and, and his working in people. I want to give you some portions of this letter. These are direct quotes. He said, I was invited to Washington National Cathedral to preach on the topic of the Holy Spirit. My desire was to highlight the power of the Spirit to bring comfort in these chaotic times. However, instead of that sermon, many only heard my words from many years ago. Now, the many years ago he's referring to is 2004. In 2004, I preached a sermon on the topic of same-sex marriage. I now see that in that sermon, I was disrespectful. I was hurtful. I wounded people in ways that were devastating. I should have done better. It grieves me that my words have hurt or been used to hurt the LGBTQ, and many times they'll put a plus there for additional letters to be added later, community. I apologize to you, and I ask forgiveness of Christ. Now, the sermon that he's referring to in 2004 Uh, The detractors went out and found the sermon, and this was part of the most egregious part. And here's the part that he's apologizing for. He said in 2004, how will homosexuality impact our culture? What about the spread of disease? 
If gay lifestyle and gay marriage is endorsed, what follows? Polygamy? Legalized incest? The answer to those questions are yes. If we can't draw a line, will lines, where will lines be drawn at? Men and women were not intended for identical gender, but the opposite. Now what he said there in 2004 is correct. What he's saying there is no dig on homosexuals or lesbians or any other group. He wasn't bashing anybody. He was speaking objective truth or asking obvious questions that should have for most people, certainly Christians, an obvious answer, right? A biblical answer. So this is what they were all upset about that he's apologizing for back from 2004. He goes on in the letter. Faithful people may disagree about what the Bible says about homosexuality. Really? But we agree that God's holy word must never be used as a weapon to wound others. To be clear, I believe in the traditional biblical understanding of marriage. But I also believe in a God of unbounded grace and love. LGBTQ individuals and LGBTQ families must be respected and treated with love. They are beloved children of God. Now catch that. They are beloved children of God. Now that is a very common phrase used, especially by the unbelieving world, to try to bring everybody into what we would call salvation by saying everybody's a child of God. That is not true. The Bible says we're children of Adam. Adam was the only one directly created by God. Even Eve was not a direct creation because God used part of Adam to make Eve. The Bible says because of Adam's fall, we have all become children of darkness or children of sin, i.e. literally children of Satan. And only by the regenerative power of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit can we be adopted into the family of God spiritually. The Bible says as many as received Him, to them God gave the power to become His sons and daughters. That's very important. That's a biblical truth. Now here he's saying they are all beloved children of God because they are made in the image and likeness of God. That has nothing to do with being a child of God. And by the way, we are only in the image of God indirectly by being born in the image of Adam. The fallen image of Adam. Ladies, you face many pains in childbearing and child caring when you are pregnant that Eve did not face before the fall. That's not the likeness of God. That's the taints of the fall of sin. So he goes on to say, over centuries, the church has harmed LGBTQ people and their families just as the church has harmed people on issues of race, gender, divorce, addiction, and so many other things. We must do better to serve and love one another. Now, friends, let me tell you what that is. That is a modern, politically correct sellout is what that is. That is one of our leading Christian spokesmen who has now caved on the issue of same-sex marriage, of same-sex attraction, and same-sex sex. Now, that is not all the Scriptures talk about, obviously. And when you look at the list of those who will not be in heaven, those folks are also listed right along beside liars, adulterers and adulteresses, drunkards, and thieves. 
So if you look at these lists closely and read kind of between the lines in the intended purpose, you'll find yourself, as I do myself, in those lists. So we're all on the list, you understand? So it's not just to single out this one group, but to have someone of the stature of Max Lucado say so many incredibly unbiblical things as he caves is a huge problem. Now let's jump to a different subject. This is the the pastor of a large Southern Baptist church and the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer. J.D. Greer, in commenting about transgenders or transsexuals, says this, that we should use pronoun hospitality. Let me give you the quote. Personally, I lean a little bit toward generosity of spirit. Well, that's good. I think we all should. If a transgender person came into our church, came into my life, I think my disposition would be to refer to them by their preferred pronoun. When we want to talk about gender, I will be clear to them about the truth. The question is, is that the battlefront you want to choose? And he says, therefore, we should practice pronoun hospitality. Have you ever heard such nonsense in all your life? It's just nuts. And yet here's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention talking about something as serious, not only physically and psychologically, but spiritually as transgenderism. As if it's a debate between what is best, Reese's Cups or Reese's Pieces. Or is it better to drive a Ford or a Chevrolet or a Dodge? I mean, we can have differences of opinions on a whole lot of stuff, right? But there are just some things that there's really no room for debate. Not if you believe in absolute, objective truth. And these are just examples of what we're facing in this day. John MacArthur, in an article that he wrote March the 1st of this year, entitled... uh, The end of frivolous religion wrote this. And you need to hear this quote. You need to look up the article and read the entire article. Shallow superficiality has been the bane of American evangelicalism for decades now. One of the distinguishing characteristics of the contemporary evangelical movement has been a pathological craving for entertainment rather than edification. For many, this is the only flavor of religion they have ever known. Jesus' Great Commission was not a marketing manifesto. The church is not a business whose task is to promote a product to consumers. The church is supposed to be a gathering of the faithful to exalt the glory of God. Sin and righteousness and judgment are essential themes of the message Christians are supposed to convey to the world. Instead, it seems American religion has wholeheartedly embraced a kind of lighthearted, culture-driven pragmatism where the central goal is to be cool and stylish, gain attention, admiration, and applause from people steeped in secular culture and attract massive crowds by giving people what they want. Scripture says it is a mark of apostasy when preachers cater to people who will not tolerate sound biblical teaching but demand to have their ears tickled with half-truths and fables. Wow. You need to look up that article, read the entire article. It's not a real long article. But he is so right 
as he most often always is. Now, our friend Alex McFarlane, who is an apologist, he's been here. He speaks at a number of the conferences that Paul and I do around the country. In referring to Max Lucado, and I'll only give the last of the quote. You can look at the rest of it as I give the last part. But he says that implying that preachers who have preached against homosexuality and lesbianism uh, have done so with malicious intent is a slam. He said it's a horrible slam. Max Lucado, and I quote, should do God and the church and the lost world a favor and get out of the ministry. Right. That is exactly what I think should happen. Now here's a verse to begin our discussion this morning. It comes out of the Old Testament, Proverbs 17, 15. Apply this to what you've just heard Max Lucado say or what you just heard the president of the Southern Baptist Convention say. Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Now let that sink in for just a moment. People who justify the wicked while also condemning the just are an abomination as far as God is concerned. And friend, when God calls something an abomination, you better write it down straight and plain. Those people and ideas are headed for the lake of fire. They are going to face the massive wrath of God. Now, I'm not saying that Max Lucado is not a Christian. I'm not saying that J.D. Greer is not a Christian. I'm not saying that others who have said similar or even worse things, although J.D. has said some other things that, if it's possible, are worse than the pronoun hospitality concept that he has. He said worse things. I'm not saying that these people are not Christians. But I'm telling you that there are multiplied millions of people who think they're Christians who aren't that are being deceived by these men because they hedge on the truth and will not stand when someone desperately needs to stand for what is right. Max Lucado should have never apologized for that sermon in 2004. He should have sent all of his critics a copy of it and said, Ditto! But instead, he writes the National Cathedral and apologizes. And J.D. Greer says, we need to practice pronoun hospitality and all that kind of stuff. Well, let me tell you, I don't know but two pronouns, he and she. And I'm not going to call you by the wrong one. So just just understand, and I'm not going to be hateful. We shouldn't be hateful about these things. But friends, when we begin to cave on these issues, remember, this is not an argument between whether or not Reese's Cups or Reese's Pieces are better. This is not an argument between what's best, a Chevy or a Ford. There's room for debate and difference of opinion on stuff like that. We're talking about issues that define who we are and ultimately define whether or not the Bible is God's Word and can be trusted. Because ultimately what this does is it does more than undermine the culture. Friends, it undermines our confidence in the Word of God. Now maybe not your confidence, maybe not my confidence, but I'm telling you there are millions of people who are either lost in darkness, living a perverted lifestyle, who want people like Max Lucado to embrace who they are so they don't feel any guilt, or millions others who are confused and don't really know what the Bible says, and they're looking to men like Max Lucado and J.D. Greer to give them the truth. They do not give them the truth, and these people are confused, deceived, and led astray. So Proverbs says... Those who justify the wicked are an abomination to God. So let's begin with question number one. What is the gospel anyway? 
Because isn't this always the catchphrase? Well, we just preach the gospel. Don't worry about these other issues. Max is still okay on the gospel. He's got the gospel right. Well, let's answer this question once and forevermore. What is the gospel? Well, first of all, the gospel certainly is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever trusts in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is definitely the gospel. But the gospel is also John 14.6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father by me. Now, all of a sudden, the gospel takes a little bit of a turn. Because not everybody then can, is going to be embraced within the family of God because Jesus says, only through me. I have an exclusive right on salvation. Well, let's go a little further. The gospel is also Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God, the dynamite of God, to salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek or the non-Jew. Okay, well that's the gospel. But the gospel is also the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus and the apostles preached. You'll find two references there, Matthew 4.23 and Matthew 9.35, where the Bible says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now let me ask you something. What do you think the gospel of the kingdom was? Only John 3.16? Do you think that's the only thing that got Jesus into trouble? Now, I don't have time this morning to cover all of the examples, but friends, Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his day for stealing tithes and using them for their own selfish gain. Jesus attacked the religious leaders of his day for being hypocrites, fakes. He did all of these things outside of a John 3.16 message. I would assume that that's part of the gospel of the kingdom then, wouldn't you? Yeah, so the gospel of the kingdom then obviously goes beyond John 3.16. So what is the gospel? Well, it's the same gospel preached to Abraham in 2000 B.C. You say, what? The gospel in Abraham's time, 2000 B.C.? Yes, Galatians 3.8, Paul writes, By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. So the gospel is not just limited to what we would consider New Testament Christianity. The Old Testament is not plan A, didn't work so well, so God brought in plan B, worked a lot better. No, 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 it's all plan A. In the book of Galatians, Paul makes it very clear why we needed the Old Testament and the law to bring us to the New Testament and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the new birth. All of this is the gospel. But the gospel is also the gospel Jesus told us to preach and teach. By extension, if you look at Matthew 28, 19 and 20, we often call this the Great Commission, given to the disciples first and foremost, but by extension, all of us who are believers, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So what is the gospel of the kingdom? Well, it's right here. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Well, that seems to go beyond just a simple John 3.16 message. Well, it seems to because it does. The gospel is far broader than just someone coming to know Christ. In fact... The gospel not only takes us to heaven someday, but it also brings heaven down to us now. 
God's plan is for the gospel to not only save us, but to sanctify us. You know what that means? That means that the world can say, well, what does a Christian look like? And you ought to be able to say, look at me. Look at what God has done and is doing in me. That's the definition of a Christian. Now, not out of arrogance, not out of pride, but out of obedience to God is how you ought to be able to say that. You ought to be able to say, a walking, breathing, testifying, obedient Christian looks like this. Can you say that? Now, none of us can say it without some reservation because all of us struggle. So I'm not implying that you have to live in perfection or you can't make that claim. But ultimately... We are to be the living example of what it means to be redeemed. Jesus doesn't just save us to take us to heaven. He saves us so men and women who don't know Christ can know what heaven looks like. If He only saved you to take you to heaven, the biggest favor He could have done for this church is to kill you the minute you got up off your knees after you prayed to receive Christ. That is not why we are saved only. God has much more in His gospel than just how to get from here to heaven. Consider Paul when he's departing from Ephesus. He had ministered to those people. They gathered with him down at the dock. They knew that they would never see him again. Not in this life. They're seeing him now. But they wouldn't see him then for who knew how long. And he said to those Ephesian elders, the men who led the church in Ephesus, he said, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Notice he didn't say, Well, I've been faithful to share John 3.16 with you. And by the way, when you look at that great commission, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, Go out and make converts. Get them to pray John 3.16. He says, Go out and make disciples. Now, if you go back through Jesus' teaching and you, you understand His definition of a disciple, it is way more than a saved, baptized, I joined the church, Baptist Christian. It's way more than that. It's one who will take hold of the plow and not look back. It's one who will love God even more than he loves himself or his family or his career or his wealth or anything else. It's one who commits himself to the cause of Christ above and beyond everything else, who dies daily. But see this idea, well, you know, Max has the gospel, right? Well, he may have the entry paragraph of the gospel, right? But the whole counsel of God, the whole gospel, is broader than John 3.16, not to be critical of John 3.16. It's obviously the inspired word of God. Listen to what Paul writes later on in Hebrews 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, that means beginner stuff, Christian 101, where most Christians live for their entire lives, let us go on to perfection, that means maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. In other words, don't just circle like a buzzard around your salvation moment. Nail that down. Make certain you're saved. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, you need to examine yourself and make sure that you're saved, that you do not fail the test. But once you've done that and you're sure you're a Christian, if you're doubting your salvation, then nail it down. Be able to nail that down hard and fast and then go from there and stop circling like a buzzard around your salvation moment. 
Thank God for it. Don't ever forget the moment when Christ redeemed you. But guys, God has way more in store for you than just to get you from here to heaven. He wants to bring heaven into you. And so he says, go on from dead works and of faith toward God. Move on. Peter puts it like this, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. When Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, how am I going to get to heaven? Jesus said, we have to be born again, Nicodemus. You have to experience a spiritual birth. Your physical birth is not enough. So Jesus is saying you become a spiritual infant. Well, infants need milk. When we first come to Christ, we have to do Christian 101. I think one of the most important things that you could do is to study evangelism explosion. If you really think that you understand the gospel, you meet with Brother Emmett and you go through a semester of studying evangelism explosion and really come to understand what the gospel of salvation really is. That's a really good 101. We used to teach the, uh, the survival kit at Trinity where we would take new believers through a 16-week course teaching them just the basics, the fundamentals of Christianity. Most Christians have never gotten that. They're saved baptized, join the church, and then they warm a pew. And whatever they can glean on their own, they try to glean. If they're self-starters or aggressive, they may begin to buy themselves some really good books and study. But typically, all they get is what I'm delivering today. And unfortunately, surveys show that by Wednesday, the average churchgoer not only cannot remember the sermon, forget that, they can't even remember the topic by Wednesday which kind of blows a hole in most preachers. It's not a, a real good uh, uh, courage or um, um, what a self-esteem uh, builder to know that most people are going to forget everything I say and even the topic by this Wednesday. So what I'm saying is if that's your Christianity, then you're still on milk. We need to go beyond that. That's why Paul then says in Hebrews 5, and by the way, we're going to look at a number of verses so you can understand that these are just not my opinions For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That means mature. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. How much, how much of your Christianity are you using? See, he says, by by reason of use, they have sharpened their skills. It's like an athlete. It's like a musician. It's like an author. It's like an orator. It's like a carpenter, like a mechanic, like an artist who can paint, a songwriter. They practice and they work on their skill as you probably do yours to do what? For by reason of use, you sharpen those skills. Well, this is what Paul is writing in Hebrews 5. You don't just stick on the milk. So here's what most Christians do not understand about themselves. They began at a point called justification. When you came to know Christ, God gave you three packages. It's actually three packages in one. It's all one gift. It's called the gift of eternal life where God embraces you and adopts you into his family. You were a son of Adam headed for hell. But by Christ on the cross, 
You become a son of God, adopted. If you don't believe that, go read Romans chapter 8. You're adopted into God's family. And it's as if you never sinned. That's justification. Most Christians never understand anything more. And they don't really even totally understand justification. Because they walk around with some kind of guilt trip because the devil's beating them up all the time. Part of that is because they keep giving him a club to beat them with. But the Christian life is more than that. As you move on up the hill, you begin to open up the second part of the package. Sanctification. Where the Holy Spirit begins to work on you and to make you look more and more like Jesus. It's just like the old wood carver who was asked by a little boy one day, how can you take a block of wood and carve out such a lifelike, real-looking horse? And the carver said, it's very simple. I take a block of wood and I cut off everything that doesn't look like a horse. And when I'm done, it looks just like a horse. Well, that's a really good definition of sanctification. The Holy Spirit is working in you and me, if you're truly born again, carving off everything that doesn't look like Jesus. Now, that's a painful experience. It's not always fun. It's growth. It's a struggle. That's why it's uphill. But the Holy Spirit is working sanctification in you. Well, this is the gospel, friends. See, most people believe the gospel is just this. No, the gospel is also this. But that's only the second of the three parts of the package. Here's the third part of the package. Glorification. This is when God calls you home or He returns and He takes your soul and spirit and puts them back into a glorified B-O-D-Y that you will live in for all eternity. You're not going to be a see-through ghost. There aren't ghosts anyway. You're not going to be all eternity, spirit, soul. You're going to live in a body. You say, what it's going to be like? We don't have time except to say, take a look at Jesus' resurrection body. That's what it'll be like. Jesus looked just like himself. They recognized him, all that he could eat. He could be touched, but he could appear in the midst of the disciples with all the windows and doors locked shut. He could ascend into heaven and defy the law of gravity. That's the glory of the glorified body. But that's the third installment of what happened way back here. Guys, all of this is the gospel. So when you let cowardly, worldly compromised preachers off the hook by saying, well, they they preach the gospel. They get the gospel right. No, they don't. Max Lucado has the gospel wrong, at least by his letter. Now, I don't know what he believes in his head and his heart. I must assume that what he wrote in the letter is what he believes. Well, according to what he wrote in the letter, he has the gospel wrong. The process of sanctification does not include people who are knowingly living disobedient lives. It just doesn't. And then here's a verse of scripture for you to write down. Ephesians 4, 13 through 14, where the Bible says that ultimately God is trying to bring us all together to a mature body, both individually and corporately, so we can be the church that he wants us to be. The family, the spiritual family that he wants us to be. So that's the gospel. So this is why Paul rips those who are just on milk and are carnal. Look what he says to the Corinthian Christians. I could not speak to you as to spiritual people, mature people is what he means, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for you weren't able to receive it. 
He's ripping these people saying, look, you're still at point one. You're still in Christian 101. You should have already moved up to 201 or 301 or 401. What are you doing still in 101? And then in Hebrews 5, he says the same thing again. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. In other words, he says, you're going to have to go back and take a refresher. You've been in 101 so long, you've even messed that up. You know, I know Christians that have been in the beginner class for so long, they've fouled that up. They even don't believe properly about what actually happened to them. This is what EE, Brother Emmett, is all about. It's to remind believers of what really happened to you when you came to Christ. Most Christians can't articulate that. He said, you're going to to go back and take a refresher course. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled, as I read a while ago. So he's ripping those. So what is the gospel? It's the whole counsel of God. Not just John 3.16. Now, if you want to go to a football game or a basketball game and hold up a a poster, you remember all those years in Dallas Cowboy football games, there's always a guy in the end zone holding up a John 3.16 sign. If you want to do that, that's fine. John 3.16 is true. But it is only the beginning of what God has to say about what it means to be a Christian, not the end. So then why is the gospel so offensive? Because that's what men like Lucado and... Greer and others are trying to do. They're trying to make the gospel inoffensive to those who don't like it. So why is the gospel so offensive? Is it just that God is offensive? No. Scripture tells us that the gospel is offensive to unsaved man. Scripture warns us, all the way back in the Old Testament, by the way, Isaiah 8, that God is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And then look at these two. You can write them down. I'm not going to read them to you. But Romans 9, 33 and 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8 quotes this very truth that the gospel is offensive. That Christ is a stone that most people stumble over. You're familiar with this verse. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 23. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. You know that because of that, Paul was always persecuted. And listen to what he says about that in Galatians 5 verse 11. If I still preach circumcision, that means you have to be a Jew to be a Christian. Why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. Notice what he's talking about. You preach the truth, and you're going to offend people. You tell them the truth, you're going to offend them. Now, why is that? Well, write these down very quickly. Man is sinful and wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9, you know what that says. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Romans 3, verses 10 and 23. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. One of the reasons the gospel is so offensive is because we are. We're lost. We're sinful. We're wicked. There's a second reason the gospel is offensive, other than the fact that the Bible says it's going to be. The world hates Jesus, His gospel, and His people. Jesus warned in Matthew 10, the disciples, you're going to be hated by all for my name's sake. Understand it. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. John 3, 19, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because they're deeds. 
were evil. The other problem is that people don't like the gospel because it claims exclusivity. I mean, it's exclusive. Uh, it, only the gospel will save. You say, well, Dan, that's just your opinion. You're a narrow-minded Christian. Well, no, I'm actually quoting Jesus. Jesus no, says, no one comes to the Father but by me. We've already seen that. So whenever somebody says, well, that's just your opinion, say, no, that's just what Jesus said. If you've got a problem with that, you've got a problem with Jesus, not me. I'm just quoting him. But it's not just Jesus. It's the early church. You go to the book of Acts chapter 4, verse 12. You know this verse. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The gospel gospel is exclusive. People don't like that, especially today. Everybody's supposed to be inclusive. Look at all the stuff that's so racist we didn't even know it. I mean, cat in a hat. I didn't realize he wore a white hood. I thought he wore a top hat. I didn't know that, Dr. Zeus. I mean, it's just the beginning. Guys, do you realize they're now saying math, arithmetic is racist? Two plus two equals four is racist? There are kinds of foods that are being called racist. Please help me. What in the world is wrong with people? So it's this idea... That we just have to all get together. If I could teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. You remember that? Or how about Rodney King? Why can't we all just kind of get along? Right. So that's the whole idea. But, but Jesus comes along and says no. And then another reason they hate it. The gospel is brutally honest. It's just brutally honest. You know this verse. But if you, if you don't remember it, write it down. Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing even to the vision of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. By the way, that's why they hate it so much. All of this stuff that the leftists are doing, oh, they may hate conservatives and all that kind of stuff, but I'm telling you, you boil all that down and you know what they really hate? The gospel. It's the gospel thereafter. They want to shut down the church They want to tax and fine and jail guys like Paul and me. That's what they are after. They want to shut you down. That's okay if you're a Buddhist. You can say anything you want. If you're Muslim, say anything you want. You're a follower of Confucius. Okay, that's good. We can teach that at school. We can have a whole week where students can take on Muslim names and wear Muslim garb and study what it means to be a Muslim for a whole week. Can you imagine what the ACLU or the teachers union or some other group would do if you had a week where it was Christian week and you had to take on a Christian name, which of course you would have to do because most of them have one, and then you'd wear Christian clothing and you'd study for a week what it means to be a born-again Christian. Can you imagine can't do that. But you can do it if you're Muslim. It's okay. We'll, we'll do that. We'll teach all these white kids what it means. We'll teach all these American Anglos what it means to be uh, Middle Eastern and uh, Islam. It's Islamic or Muslim. I'm telling you, what they hate is the gospel. Because it, it cuts them to the heart. Now back to MacArthur. He said this. He said, if truth offends, then let it offend. People have been living their whole lives in offense to God. Let them be offended for a while. He's right. Okay, so I've got to pick it up here. So you know these passages of Scripture. This is how blatantly um, 
brutally honest the Bible is. In these verses, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Romans 1, 26 and 27, the Bible openly, unashamedly condemns sexual perversion. Now that would include adultery. That would include fornication of any type. That would include pedophilia. But it also includes homosexuality and lesbianism. In fact, Romans 1 says it's unnatural. Simply unnatural. The Bible is brutally honest. Max Lucado knows this. But when you read about heaven in the New Jerusalem, notice that one of the things that the angel told John when he was writing down John, uh, Revelation is in chapter 21. He says, there's not going to be a lot of stuff there. He says, for instance, the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable. By the way, what is an abomination? Well, anything that's wicked, that's an abomination to God. An abomination is also anybody who says that which is wicked is actually good. That would include homosexuality, murderers, but then, of course, sexually immoral. Sorcerers, idolaters, all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. There will by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. And then in Revelation 22, at the very end of everything, listen to what God says, but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Why didn't Max Lucado write those verses down in his letter? Well, the reason's obvious, because he's trying to dodge this. He's trying to create this unoffensive gospel. And don't you find it interesting that of all the sins, and we all know we're all sinners, it doesn't take any more of the blood or grace of Jesus to save a homosexual or a lesbian or a pedophile that does to save me. I'm just as lost as anybody else. Jesus died on the cross for two thieves right between the both of them. So understand, it takes the same blood of Jesus. But don't you find it interesting that the only sin in Scripture that God literally obliterated an entire area over was homosexuality that had run so rampant that men wanted to rape angels. Go and read the story. When those angels come to Lot's house, he has to bar the door because the homosexuals are trying to break in to have sex with those two angels. And the angels realize these guys are going to beat the door down, so they strike them blind. And the Bible says that they spent all night in their blindness still trying to find the door. Now let me tell you something. If an angel strikes me blind over something, I'm going to quit it, whatever it is. I mean, I won't even do my wife's anymore. I will follow the driving instructions that I will start getting the moment we leave this parking lot. Yes, ma'am. Yes. And then this, like that. What? We're going into the ditch. I notice there's white lines. We're still within them. Does your wife do that? Now, I'm not saying she sounds like that. She just sounds like that to me. I told you I need bodyguards. Terry, can you help me? Okay. But, but look, look. It's the only place in Scripture where God says He just obliterated it. 
You think that's a coincidence? Last point, and we're done. So the gospel's offensive. Must we be offensive as we deliver the gospel? No, of course not. We ought to be loving, kind. When, when, when Lucado says these things about we want to show love to the homosexual, lesbian, and transgender community, to the LGBTQ plus crowd, of course. Friend, Jesus died for them on the cross. Because if he didn't, then maybe we're not saved either. Because when you read the lists of all the sins that keep people out of heaven, mine are on it too. So I guess we're all in trouble, aren't we? Now, Jesus died for anybody. People who practice sexual perversion in many ways are no different than those of us who lie or those of us who steal. Now, I will admit to you that the Bible does kind of put these kinds of sexual perversions at the bottom of the barrel. I get that. They are an abomination to God. They are completely unnatural. But friend, understand, God loves all of us. And we should not be obnoxious or offensive when we preach. In fact, Paul reminds us in Romans 2, it's the goodness of God that brings men to repentance. Now, I don't have time to read this quote. I wish I did from Jonathan Edwards. Maybe take a screenshot of it if you want it. I'll read it in another sermon sometime. But he's talking about how repentance is actually a gift. Repentance makes you feel good. It's a gift of God to be able to repent. Not something to be run from. There's a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, who is many things. His name's Trip Lee. He's a pastor. He's a teacher. He's an author. But oddly enough, he's a Christian hip-hop artist, a lot like Paul Blair. So he's a... Can you just see that? I mean, can you see him with those flamingo knees, one of them bends backwards, you know, and all that stuff? You just think Michael Jackson t- could do something really cool. You watch Paul with a knee that bends both ways. I'm telling you, that guy can do some stuff. No, but this guy, he's a Christian hip-hop artist, and you may believe, well, those two words don't go together. Well, anyway, he's a pastor, he's a teacher, he's an author, he's a hip-hop artist. Listen to what he said, and really, to be honest with you, I think he's right. So the gospel itself is already offensive enough. We don't need to add offense to it by being jerks about everything. We don't need to add offense to it by being very condemning and self-righteous. He's right. We don't need to add offense to it by being incapable of actually loving and being in relationship with people. He's right. We really want to show people the compassion of Jesus even as we say very hard things. And I think that last line is the key. Notice he says we want to show compassion while we say hard things. My argument with Lucado and his ilk is that they won't say the hard things anymore. It's not that he wants to reach out in love toward the LGBTQ community. So do I. They desperately need the love of Christ. If that thief on the cross had been a homosexual thief, do you think Jesus would say, Oh, well, you can't be with me in paradise today because I didn't realize that you added to your thievery homosexuality. What if he'd been an adulterer? What if he'd been a lying thief? What if he was a drunk thief? Was there anything that that thief could have been that actually heard the words, Today you will be with me in paradise? You think there's anything that Jesus could have heard from him other than just remember me when you come into your kingdom that would have caused Jesus to say, Sorry, I can't save you. The only one who didn't 
received those words from Jesus is the one who only railed against Christ and didn't ask for forgiveness. That's all. So people desperately need to hear this message. Now, Jesus could be offensive and non-offensive. Here's a verse of scripture you may not be aware of. It's in Matthew 17, 27. He's saying to the disciples about paying taxes, Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first. When you have opened his mouth, you'll find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Talk about paying their taxes. You probably remembered the part about catching the fish and the money was in its mouth. But did you remember why Jesus said, lest we offend them? If you have the idea that Jesus went around just thinking of ways that he could offend people, well, then you're wrong. Jesus didn't offend people. In fact, when you look at Jesus, typically speaking, he was very loving and receiving of people and was not always hurling out accusations. Remember the woman caught in adultery. Now, he knows she was an adulteress. And he told her, stop sinning. But he reached out in compassion to her, unlike the the religious hypocrites who were going to stone her to death because of the legalities of it. At the same time, Jesus could say to the Pharisees, you're serpents. You're like a sepulcher. You're pretty on the outside and you're full of rotting meat. Well, you can't make a Jew matter than to start calling him stuff like that. Listen to what it says. Then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I want you to listen to what Jesus said. Forget them. So that's not what he said. Well, that's what he meant. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. Let me tell you a group of people that Jesus never hesitated to offend. And that was the religious fakes. And those who compromised God's word. And he constantly was confronting them. And I don't know that he was necessarily offending them on purpose. But I can tell you, when you read what he said to them, I promise you, they were offended. This passage actually proves it. His disciples said, don't you realize you're hacking these people off? Jesus said, they're lost. They're a lost cause. Now, does that mean that he couldn't save a Pharisee? Oh, no. No, of course not. Does it mean he wouldn't save a Pharisee? No, of course not. But Jesus, knowing the hearts of men, knew that these men were going to be the very ones that hang him on a cross and then claim it was God's will. See, the religious leaders who compromise always find a way to make it God's fault. Well, I, sorry that I preached that sermon in 2004. I realized I brought a lot of hurt. I should have done a better job. And I'm really sorry for condemning your lifestyle. I was just preaching the Bible. Do you realize what I just said? It's God's fault. What I just said is, you know, God's just horribly unreasonable, isn't he? I wish he was as open-minded and as reasonable as us. That's the problem. Jesus said to his disciples when he was saying that you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. We all know that he wasn't talking about cannibalism. But listen to what he said. Does this offend you? He knew it offended them. And he said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. Notice what he's saying there. This is an exclusive deal. Does this offend you? He knew it did. He said, that's why I said it. From that time, many of his disciples did what? Went back and walked with him no more because they were offended. 
See, we always think of there only being 12 disciples. No. I mean, typically, ultimately, there was only 11. Judas was a devil. But the truth is, there were hundreds of disciples at any given time. And you couldn't tell the difference because they all looked to be the real deal. But notice, they're offended and they said, we're out of here. Then Jesus said to the twelve, you're going to go away too? You're going to split? You offended too? The bottom line is, an inoffensive gospel is no gospel at all. The gospel that Max Lucado seems to be embracing and promoting is no gospel at all. What it does is it leaves men and women stuck in their sins. It leaves men and women in the mire, even though he didn't say it, he might as well have, of adultery and fornication. Not just homosexuality and lesbianism, pedophilia. See, those are the sins that are so offensive to the Christian-minded The problem with that gospel is it leaves men and women stuck in the tar pit of their wickedness but lies to them and says they're okay. You're a child of God made in His image and I love you. And I'm sorry that I ever said anything about your sin. Would you forgive me? It would be different if Max Lucado had gotten up in 2004 and started saying obnoxious things and trying to destroy the character of a homosexual man or a lesbian woman or belittling them. But he didn't do anything like that. He simply preached the truth and now he's apologizing for it. And he's only the most recent poster child. Friends, there are more to come. I warn you, there are more to come. So where are you and I? Well, a gospel that's no gospel at all is a fake gospel. When Paul was writing to the Christians at a place called Galatia, let's listen to what he said. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is really, he says, not another. In other words, no gospel at all. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. You say, well, Lucado gets John 3.16, right? That's not all the gospel. When Paul says preach any other gospel, friends, that's the whole counsel of God. So when homosexuals in Dallas, in their homosexual church, say that we are born again practicing homosexuals, they're lying. Because the Bible says they're not born again. You say, Dan, are you telling me that a Christian could never commit a homosexual act? No, I'm not saying that. Because Christians can commit adultery. Christians can lie. Christians can steal. Christians can throw a cuss and fit. Christians can run their brother or sister down and gossip about them. But what I'm telling you is that a person cannot claim to be a born-again Christian and live that way. You cannot be a born-again burglar. Practicing burglar. You cannot be a born-again practicing liar. Unless you're an attorney and then you'll have to struggle with that. But... 
can't stop it. Can't stop it. You get what I'm saying, right? So why would any of us say, well, you can be a born-again practicing serial killer? Would anybody buy that? Of course not. Then why would we believe that someone can be a born-again practicing homosexual or lesbian? Or born-again practicing pedophile? And if you'll read that passage in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, such were some of you. So I want to close with this thought. In the end, offending one another is not the big deal. Let me tell you what the big deal is. Offending Him. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 7, 23. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. You say, wait, you said offending him. Oh, that's next. In Matthew 13, verses 41 and 42, Jesus gave us a preview of the judgment. And he said, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend. And those who practice lawlessness will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. I don't want to be offensive, and you and I shouldn't be. We should be loving and understanding and reach out with the love of Jesus to anyone caught in any kind of sin. But friends, the big question is, are you offended at Him? And is He then thus offended at you? That's the real question. An unoffensive gospel, no such thing. An unoffensive gospel is no gospel at all.